happy today to say that you are great. You're just happy to praise today. Happy because it just comes easily. Happy because it's even an invitation away, away from the thoughts and burdens and cares that we've been carrying, God. It just feels good to get praise out. So I just ask that you would just carry us along. Same joy and passion and energy that you've just brought to the table and worship we would bring to the study of your word. God, and we just come to the Bible not because we need to know more, but because you speak to us through it. It's the word of God, and it has been for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. And so we faithfully take our place great line of people who have opened up the word of God. I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. Those who need a specific word from you would get one today. So we say to prophet Samuel, speak Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. You can have a seat. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. We're so glad that you are here today. You know, I was out in the parking lot before the first service started and seeing all the cars coming down that very long drive. And, you know, when Amanda and I started the church those years ago with so many of our great friends, you know, to start something new doesn't feel permanent. You know, we're only three and a half years old. This campus is only a year and a half old. And and so every Sunday I have this deep abiding fear that this is going to be the Sunday where no one shows up. Still, you know, you'd think that, uh, that, that you would get over that, but you don't. So I, I got, always have that fear that this is the last one. So let's make it great, you know, because who knows where we'll be next week. But um, so with that fear out in the, the parking lot, just watching all the people come and uh, just so grateful to God. And, and I just wanted to, to say, like, we are so glad that you are here. Um, and I don't know if your church experience, anybody's just ever said, like, we just think it's the coolest thing in the world that you came today. And we're really grateful and really glad that you are a part of our family. At, at this church, you're allowed to come one time as a guest. And so if this is your first time, welcome. And the next time you have to come as family. And so we'd love to see you back next week as a part of our family. But just thank you so much for being here. Could not be genuinely more grateful that you came to this church today. And I believe God has something for us. So I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. So we've been in the series called Fields. The idea based on Jesus' word in John chapter 4 that the fields were white with harvest. In another place he said the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. And we're trying to correct that here in these six weeks at Bayou City the idea is that God has uniquely gifted you for a unique responsibility, a field that he wants you to work in. Your field can be your street, your field could be maybe your, your neighborhood, your field could be a specific avenue of ministry, it could maybe be where you work, uh, your field could be your family. There are a lot of different fields out there and he's uniquely gifted you for one of them. And we've talked along the way that you have a field. We've also talked that you, you, your field has people in it, which to some of us is bad news, right? Because when the people get in the mix, that's when the trouble gets in the mix, that's 
that's when the mess gets in the mix. Uh, but there are people in your field that God has called you to love and, and serve. We've talked about the credibility that we need with those people in our fields. We've talked about he, how even our suffering can be a weapon. It, it gives us an opportunity to identify and sympathize with people in this world. And last week, uh, Pastor Robbie brought such an amazing word on how love is necessary to work in our field. And today we're going to talk about what it means to endure in the work that God has given you, the responsibility that he has given you. Uh, this morning I, I woke up and I went for my Sunday morning walk. I've been doing that lately just to, to, to get an opportunity to pray and to kind of go over the last parts of, of the message for that Sunday. And so I was out pretty early. It was a little after six and uh, there were not that many people out. So it was me and then it was the runners. You know, you know the runners. How, how many of you are runners? I'm not going to make fun of you. In fact, I'm going to brag on you. Uh, so definitely not a healthy crew in here, uh, which is great. <laughs> I thought maybe the second service people would be bringing the exercise, but we're not, which is great. And I feel better about myself. <laughs> so the runners are out there and you got to love runners and you can tell a runner. Now, a runner is different from a person who exercises. A person who exercises, their doctor said, you can either run or you can die. Which one do you want to do? And the exercise person is the exercise person, but the runner is immediately obvious to everyone. I mean, you can just start by their feet. They're not wearing uh, regular sneakers. They're wearing running shoes, and they're not even wearing the running suit shoe from the running shoe section in the store. They went to a place where they actually measured their feet uh, in all directions. They're, they know the, the bottom of their feet, the way their bottoms of their foot is, and then they've got the most appropriate shoes. There's some special foam in there just for runners, and you can tell by the shoes that they have on. And then you kind of move up, and then you, you can tell that a runner by their shorts because they don't just have shorts. They have like running shorts and like NASA made these shorts. You know what I'm talking about? Like they're space age, they're waterproof. I don't know why you need waterproof shorts when you run. Apparently some people are running through water when they run. I can barely run on concrete, but they're running through places where they need waterproof. And, and the ladies shorts look totally normal, but the guys shorts, I don't know what happens to a guy's brain. In a normal situation, he wears normal length pants. But when it comes to running shorts, the guy's shorts are shorter even than the lady's shorts. You know what I mean? Like there's a guy that in, in, in our neighborhood that runs and he runs all the time, man. So God bless him. But it never looks like the dude is wearing pants because his shorts are so short and his shirt is so long. So men, if you are a runner, look in the mirror before you get out. If, if we can't see that you are wearing shorts, it doesn't matter how skinny you are. You look weird. <laughs> so you can tell by the shorts runner. And then they got the space age polymered suit, you know, shirt. And, um, and then, you know, they got a bunch of equipment on them. Runners do. They never just run. They got to have like stuff like runners wear fanny packs. I don't know why a runner needs a pocket on their stuff, but they do. Essentially what Nike did was they said, hey, remember fanny packs? We have a bunch of those from the early 90s. Let's just transition them into necessary running gear. We'll convince all these people 20 years later that they need this and we'll charge them $100 for it and they'll buy it. And so they got all the equipment and they put little, the little things for the water bottles. You know what I'm talking about? The, the, I don't know why you need 10 running water bottles on your belt when you're running around my neighborhood, but you do apparently because a lot of people, if you're running a marathon, like I'm there with you all the way, you need all the water you can get. But if you're just going out for a jog, I don't think you need to load up like that, but they do. And then they got the earbuds, you know, cause you, you need that. And they got their phone attached to their arm, which is great. Uh, that's how you can tell the difference between an exercise person and a 
professional runner is because the exercise person bought the cheap one and it slides down their arm <laughs> while they're running. But the runner bought the expensive one. They knew better. And so it stays there. It's really nice. Um, but really, that's a way to identify a runner. But what the difference is, is not any of that. What makes a person a runner is not what they wear. Because you can wear all that stuff and be a walker. You can wear all that stuff and be a, I'm going out for a jog. And I jog for like 10 seconds. And then I walk the rest of the way. But then I tell my wife that I was on a run You can wear that stuff out. I mean, everybody's wearing earbuds these days. We don't want to talk to one another, so anytime you're in public, even in the grocery store, you see people walking around the grocery store with their earbuds, and that's not what makes you a runner. What makes you a runner is that you're able to endure. The difference between a walker and a runner is a runner starts running and then keeps on running until they're they're finished. And that's what the scripture is today. It's just about enduring. Because I'm guessing that it's in all of our hearts today that when we recognize that God has given me a field, He's given me a responsibility. And I would love just for you to picture that field right now. We've been in this series six weeks, and so if you've been with us that whole time, that should immediately come to your mind that there are some people that you are responsible for on this planet. You are responsible for their spiritual development. God has put you in their lives to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth. That's your field. And I would guess it's in all of our hearts today that we want to finish the work. You know, nobody ends up in the access room after church and says, you know, I've really been researching this and I've been reading the scripture and I've looked out there and and I just, everything in me is saying that I want to believe in Jesus, but I'm only going to do that for a couple of years. Nobody says that. Nobody, you know, comes up to the volunteer tables out in the lobby and they say, I'm going to give it my all for about six months and and then I'll just kind of reevaluate. When our hearts are stirred with faith, they're stirred in a way that makes us want to commit to forever. Makes us want to commit until the end. But there's a reason why only a few of us raised our hand that we were runners because enduring is hard work. In fact, it's so hard that most people don't do it. But thankfully, in this very simple scripture, God is going to bring out of the pages a very simple word of how you and I can endure in the fields that he's placed us in. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of God's throne. So he says the first thing, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 obviously follows Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of fame of people of the faith. You've got the big heavy hitters in there. You've got Abraham. You've got Moses. uh, You've got the other patriarchs. You've got Jacob, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph. You've got David in there. You've got Joshua in there. I mean, it is a hall of fame. And then it immediately follows. Therefore, all of that, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And what do these witnesses do? They witness to us in their lives. Uh, they witness to us in encouragement uh, through their lives and through their support uh, in the heavenly realms. We are encouraged to keep on enduring. 
to keep on running the race. Now, it's obviously not limited, this cloud of witnesses, to just the names that are mentioned in Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. There are a lot of people that we're standing on their shoulders today. We are in our chapter, and in our chapter, we are responsible, but we are just one chapter in the story of God. There was a chapter before us, there was a chapter before that, there was a chapter before that, and all of those chapters are a part of this great cloud of witnesses. Like take, for example, a guy named Father Damien. You've never heard of him. But in the mid-1800s, he was a young priest in Hawaii. Now, if somebody's got to go and minister to Hawaii, I'm saying, Lord, here I am, send me. <laughs> and this guy was responsible for a parish and was just ministering among his parish, doing pastoral work. In the mid-1800s, leprosy was still a problem in Hawaii. And if they found that you had even a hint of leprosy, they would send you to the island of Molokai, which was just kind of off some of the major islands there. And it was just served as a leper colony. And so all the lepers ended up on this, this tiny little island. And, and you would hear stories from the people who would ferry the lepers to the island about how it had turned into a place of great hopelessness and great depravity. Because that's what happens when there's no future. You're hopeless and then you're depraved. Because if there's no future, why would you hope? Why would you be glad? Why would there be happiness? And if you're going... Uh, to die and you have no future, why would you follow any rules? You would just give way to your instincts. And so that's what was happening. And Father Damien's heart was stirred up for that. He didn't think that was right, that these pe- people essentially have been treated like animals and now we're living like animals, and he wanted to do something about it. And so he went and asked for permission from his authorities if he could move to that island and begin work among the lepers. And they gave him permission. And so he went and lived there. And for a while, he just tried to live among them and minister among them, uh, but without really being close. Because obviously, like you and I, he was terrified that the leprosy might pass to him. But after a while of doing that, he knew that he couldn't really be with them if he was not willing to actually be with them. To shake their hands, to give them hugs, to sit at tables with them. And so at some point, he made the decision, if I'm going to be here, then I'm going to be here. And I'll let God work out the rest. And for 15 years, he ministered among these people, loving them, caring for them, radical transformation on this island. And after 15 years, he saw his first sore. And he knew that he had leprosy. And my response, and maybe your response, would be, I should have gotten out while I could. I regret doing this. But it wasn't. He said, I've lived among these people, and now I am one. My ministry will be even more effective. You remember the stories of others. Oswald Chambers, many of you have heard of him. He wrote a devotion called My Utmost for His Highest. It's one of the best-selling books of all time. It's in 40 different languages. You could go to the Walmart right now and pick it up. That's how common it is. And, And a lot of us are thinking, well... I can't learn from that example. I mean, I don't have it in me to be a best-selling author. I don't have it in me to have a book that has never been out of print or never will probably be out of print. That's unbelievable. But Oswald Chambers didn't actually write my utmost for his highest. He didn't sit down at a typewriter or with pen or pencil and do that. Uh, He was a pastor, and uh, he wasn't even an extraordinary pastor. He was just kind of a normal, average pastor, and his wife took very good notes and And uh, so, Amanda, I need you to write some things down here. (laughs) 
And after he passed away, his wife found his journal, just his everyday journal. Every morning he would open up his Bible and he would let God speak to him through the pages of the scripture and he would write some things down, sometimes just simple observations, sometimes more complex observations. And so after he passed away, his wife took those two things, her notes from his very ordinary sermons and his notes from his journal, and she's the one who turned it in to my utmost for his highest, one of the best-selling books of all time. You think about George Mueller, also in the mid-1800s in England. He was a guy who just had a heart for orphans. He loved orphans, and he recognized that God also had a heart for orphans, and so he wanted to start an orphanage. But he wasn't a super rich guy. He wasn't connected to a, a real large amount of money. He didn't have a big foundation that he could uh, help fund uh, all, of these, uh, all of these children's lives. And, and so his simple strategy was that God loves me. God loves these orphans. Uh, he will provide what they need. And so his strategy of fundraising and care was prayer. So there's one story where the children come down for morning breakfast and literally there's no milk in the house at all. And there's no money to go and buy the milk for them. And so their strategy came into play. And so around the table, they just prayed. They prayed real specifically, God, uh, we are hungry and we need milk. As soon as they were done praying, there was a knock on the door. They go and open it. It's a milkman. And he says, my milk cart broke down right in front of your house. I'm not going to be able to deliver the rest of the day's milk. And so can you have it all? They were like, yes, we will have it all. <laughs> These are just some of the cloud of witnesses. And here's the thing. Sometimes we read about these people in the scripture and we're like, I could never be like them. They had access to something that I don't think I have access to. They have an opportunity that I really don't have an opportunity. God speak to them in a way that he would never speak to me. God would open doors for them that he would never open doors for me. But then you hear the stories of uh, Father Damien. You hear the stories of Oswald Chambers. You hear the story of George Mueller. And you go, wait a second. Those are just ordinary people. One guy just went the extra mile and moved on to this island. It wasn't like he revolutionized pastoral ministry. He just moved his address from one place to another. There's a big difference between wouldn't and couldn't. We could do that. You could go the extra mile, and so could I. Oswald Chambers' best-selling book of all time, almost, just daily faithfulness, put in devotional form. Sunday after Sunday, opening up the Word and preaching it. Monday through Saturday, writing notes as he read his Bible. You could do that. I could do that. George Mueller, just simple strategy of we have a need. We have a God who answers prayer. I can lean into that. So these cloud of witnesses, they're not just great saints that we'll never be like. Chapters 1 through what brought us here. People just like you and I. And we look to them as encouragement as examples that we should keep on enduring. Then he goes on, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So there are two separate things. We want to lay aside every weight, and we want to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. A weight is anything that hinders our ability to run with endurance. A couple of things I, I was thinking about that 
might be weights for us this morning. The fear of man might be a weight for you and I this morning. The fear of man is not um, like a phobia. A, a fear of man means there are things that I want to do. There are risks that I want to take, but what will they think? There's a way I want to order my life and feel like that's what God is asking me to do, but I'm going to have to, to say it out loud to this group of people, and that makes me feel uncomfortable. There's things that I want to try, but I don't know if there's going to be support there when I do it. That's the fear of man. And the fear of man causes a lot of us to just have one foot in our field and one foot out of our field. The fear of man is really causing a lot of us to just bring kind of our bare minimum service to God. There's a lot more that we could do, but we have so much that we have to juggle because we are afraid of what people think or we don't want to face their reaction. So instead of doing all that we can, we just do enough to satisfy our consciences. Now, fear of man is a weight around our neck. It also causes us sometimes to go into our field with fullness, but then they may say something. There may be a word of discouragement. There may be a lack of appreciation, and then we come out of our field. Then we come to church, and we go, well, maybe I shouldn't have come out of my field. I need to get back in there, and we go back in there. But again, there's a lack of encouragement. There's a void of praise, and then we come out. Fear of man is definitely a weight. Money and possessions can be a weight. And we see that in the scripture, the story of the rich young lawyer. He comes to Jesus, and he's a genuine seeker. He genuinely wants to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And this guy can't do it. His money and his possessions were too much of a weight. All of our money and all of our possessions, I think it creates a cocoon of comfort for us. Creates a comfortable environment that wrecks us. Because working in our field is uncomfortable. Because you have to work with people. You have to deal with people. You have to serve people. You have to love people. And that's not a comfortable thing to do. And if we have a more comfortable option, there will be something always inside of us pulling us out of our field and back into that comfort. Casual activities that become serious priorities is also a weight that we carry. There are some of us who are investing major league money in peewee league things. Major league time in peewee league importance. But it's a real easy thing that happens. Casual activities that become serious priorities. I'm so grateful to my mom and dad because we were a sports family. And I'm not picking on sports, just using it as an example from my own life. We were a sports family because I love sports. My sister really wasn't into it. She was more the cheerleading kind. And, and, uh, but I love sports, particularly baseball and basketball. Those were my two things that I loved. And so we just went from one season to the other season. That's what it seemed like. And we would go all over the place. In fact, the very first time I came to Texas, I was playing in a baseball tournament here uh, in Dallas, um, which is unspeakable that I had to come to Dallas first. I apologize for that. Everybody knows Houston is better. <laughs> and so, uh, man, sports was our, our life, and, and, and I really loved it, and just played it all the time, and my parents were so supportive and so generous. And I got into high school my sophomore year, about halfway through. I'm in the middle of basketball season, and start thinking about baseball season that's coming right after it, and I'm just, man, I just don't, I don't know if I have it in me this year, but, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, reason number one God was really shifting my heart in that season towards him. 
And my church would take these summer mission trips. And because I played baseball all summer, I couldn't go on these trips. Also, I was pretty tired and worn out from the season that I was in. And I was pretty tired and worn out because every weekend of every summer of my whole life, I had been playing baseball and loved every second of it, but I was pretty worn out. So the end of basketball season came, and I was still feeling that way. And so I went to my parents, and I just said, I don't, I don't think I want to do this. You know what they said? Okay. Now, that's not what I would have said if I was my parent at the time. Looking back, I think, man, what a bunch of saints. Because if I were them, I would have said, are you a moron? <laughs> let, me, let me count these reasons why that's a, a dumb decision. Number one, why would you choose basketball over baseball? Hello, you are five foot nine at best. <laughs> There's no future on the other side of your high school graduation for you. Uh, with a basketball. There's not. There's just not. We love you so much. You're so handsome. But there is no future for you. I would have said, do you know how many thousands of hours we have spent watching poorly played games? And now, right before it's starting to get good, you're going to walk away from that? I would have said, do you know how many thousands of dollars we have spent in bats, in gloves, in practices, in equipment, in uniforms over the years. Why on earth would you quit now? But they didn't. They just said, if that's what you want to do, that sounds fine to us. And so I did go on a mission trip that summer. You know where I came? Houston, Texas. <laughs> and I came back the next year. I came back the next year. I came back the next year. And I met Amanda. And this is where we live. Because my parents knew the difference between a casual activity and a spiritual priority. And some of us are not good at discerning that line. And we have made things serious that are just fun and games. We have made hobbies life and death. We've made things that should bring joy. And all they bring is stress. I mean, how many of us have ever acted like we are hostages to schedules that we have created. Casual activities that turn into serious priorities. These are all weights on us. They're not sin. They're not morally bankrupt. But they're unnecessary weight that keeps us from enduring in our field. And then he goes on. He says, lay aside every weight and also what? The sin that so easily ensnares us. This reminds us that sin is dangerous. You know, there's a partnership between sin and Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 says that Satan is a prowling uh, lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking to devour you and sin and Satan partner up because the sin will trap you so that Satan can devour you. That's how it works. The sin gets you. It hooks you. It sticks you. Ensnares you, and then Satan comes to devour you. It ensnares us. It's sinful patterns are addictive. And how many of you, this is not a sinful pattern, but uh, raise your hand if you have the Amazon app on your phone. Anybody have the Amazon app besides me? Yeah, isn't the most wonderful thing? Uh, If you don't have it, don't download it because it's like drugs, it's like narcotics. 
Because what you can do with the Amazon app is that you can get on there and find anything that you want. Amazon has everything that has ever been made in the history of the world. It's even got some stuff that hasn't been made yet. It's amazing. And, and there's a feature on there where you can just click one button and within 24 hours, that thing will be at your house. I mean, that is awesome and horrifying that, that you can, and it's, it's addictive. It's addictive because like, oh, I, I need that book. Boom. Well, I also need this other thing on here. And once you do one purchase, then the second purchase is just coming right on behind it. And that's what sin is like. How many of us have, have gotten into sinful patterns because we just said, well, it's just this one time. It's not a big deal. It's disconnected from everything else. It's just one time. Well, listen, the way it works is your first time cuts the trail for the second time. And the second time widens the road for the third time. And the third time lays down gravel for the fourth time. And the fourth time lays down some concrete for the fifth time. And the fifth time creates a super highway of sin. And that's where some of us are right now. It's not even that we want to do it. It just seems like everything is moving so fast in that direction. And there are no exit ramps. You come to church, you know that you're stuck in this sinful pattern. And you get to church and you're like, I want to exit. I want to exit. This is not right. This is not good. But then you get into your real life outside of this room and you're like, there's no off ramps. It's because in the same way that you had to cut the trail the first time when you sinned, you're going to have to cut a trail off that freeway. And you're going to have to put your head down and steer into the wall to get out of the sinful trap that you have created. Thankfully, the scripture tells us that there is an off ramp. There's always an opportunity out of sin. God is faithful to present that for us. But for some of us, our eyes are so focused and locked in on that sinful pattern we're stuck in, we miss the exit. We miss the opportunity. But we have to lay aside every weight and sin. So some of us today, we just need some good old-fashioned repentance. Just some old school, I did this, and it's wrong, and I am sorry. I mean, just ask yourself, when was the last time that you said you were sorry to God because you sinned against Him, against yourself, and against someone else? For most of us, it's been a long time. And some of us need to rediscover what repentance means. Some of us have repented, but we haven't stopped. We need to stop today. And maybe stopping for you is to get it outside of you. You and God are the only two people that know about this super highway of sin that you're stuck on. Maybe today you need to find somebody that's safe and available to just say, I just need to say this out loud to somebody besides myself. And all of us need prayer and all of us need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Laying aside every weight and every sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. So we should fix our eyes on Jesus. Singular focus. Why? Because one of the greatest enemies to us enduring in our field is just plain Old distraction. 
We live in a culture that distracts us so easily. We live in a culture where being committed to something for a long time has very little value. Buzz, praise, credit, splash. That's what has value in our culture. There's not much credit in I've worked at this company for 40 years. There's not much credit to we've been married for 20 years. There's not much credit in, uh, you know, we've lived in this house for 40 years. There's not a lot of credit there. New gets the credit. But to endure, we're going to have to resist the distraction. And to resist the distraction, we need to focus our eyes on Jesus. And why should we focus our eyes on Jesus? Because he is the source of our faith. Before you reached out to him, he reached out to you. Before you called out to him, he called out to you. Before you made your way towards him, he made his way towards you. He's the source of our faith. He's also the perfecter of our faith, meaning he's sanctifying you. Even right now, there's a holy work that's happening because we have the word of God opening and we're looking at it and we're asking it, what does it mean for our lives? He's doing a supernatural work in you. He's perfecting you. He's sanctifying you. He's making you look more and more like Jesus, even as we speak right now. Why else should we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Why should you fix your eyes on Jesus? Because of the cross. I mean, just ask yourself, what in your life is more grand than the cross of the Son of God? What in your life is more holy than the cross of the Son of God? What in your life deserves more attention than the cross of the Son of God? I mean, just try it. Fix your eyes on Jesus, picturing them there, the Son of God, holy and pure, sacrificially laying his life down on the cross. Picture him there, and then just compare your greatest accomplishment next to it. Can it stand? Picture him, and then picture your greatest hope and dream of uh, material success. Can it stand? Picture your greatest fear. Can it stand? Picture your greatest dream for your kids. Can it stand? There's nothing in your life that deserves your attention more than the cross of Jesus. And when you fix your eyes on that, then you find the strength to endure. You find the motivation to endure. You find the tenacity to endure. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of your faith, what you get back is it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. What that means is that some of us can rest. Two reasons that you will drop out of the work in your field as we finish here this morning. Two reasons. Number one, you drop out. Number two, you burn out. Burnout is about being overworked and overloaded. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we understand that the pressure's not on us. We understand that it's not about us. And maybe we don't need to overwork. Overwork is a result of fear. Fear of two things. Number one, that you won't measure up. Or number two, that the people around you won't measure up. That's the only two reasons why you would overwork. You overwork because you're afraid that you won't get credit. You overwork because you're afraid you won't get acclaim. You won't get what you want. So you overwork. 
or you overwork because you don't trust anybody around you. That's why some of you work long hours because you're afraid if you put it into the hands of somebody else on your team, it's just not going to be done. Therefore, all the pressure rests on your shoulders. But when we look at the cross of Jesus, we realize that there's a lot more important things in this life than work. We realize there's a lot more uh, important things in this life than whatever you and I are stressed about, and it lets us be relieved of those two fears. A couple of warning signs that you might be overworked. I'm just going to say up front, most of us are not. So if you're thinking like, yeah, I'm pretty tired right now, that's just because you didn't go to bed early enough. (laughs) couple of signs that you're close to burnout as we finish up this morning. Uh, Number one, if you hate everyone, (laughs) you need to rest. If you show up in the parking lot of your work and you think to yourself right before you get out, I hate the guts of everybody in here, you need a vacation. You need a vacation. Take a break. If you're leading a Bible study and as it's starting, you're looking around going, I hate that guy. I hate that girl. I mean, it's, we're Christians, so like, I really, 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 really don't like that guy and I really don't like that person. You need a break. Another sign that you're overworked, if your first emotion is always negative. If somebody tried to bring you ice cream and you're like, ice cream, I'm just going to get fat. It's a sign that you're overworked, overburdened. If, you're, if your initial instinct is to react to something with a negative attitude, it's not just because you're a negative person may just be because you're so stressed out, maxed out, so much pressure on you that you can't see anything else but that. And that just becomes your lens for how you view life. A third sign that you may need a rest, if your energy is low for things that you care about, you need a rest. There are things that you just love and have always loved and still love, but before it, you just can't motivate yourself to get there, to put in the time, to put in the work. You need a rest. So what does that mean? It means we need to quit everything? No, we need to figure out a way to rest without breaking our commitments. We need to figure out a way to rest from work without resting from our passion for that thing, without resting from our commitment. And the best way to do that is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And to remind myself, I am not God. This doesn't all rest on me. Dads, you're overworked because you feel like you are solely responsible for the provision of your family. And I'm telling you this morning that God is the provider of your family. You are just a tool in his hands. So don't overwork. You are not the glue off this marriage. You are not the only thing holding it together. God loves you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows him. He knows your unique situation. So you keep doing your part. But let the stress come off your shoulders that this is all up to you. That it's all in your hands. And you have the power of life and death. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we remember those things. Parents. You can't be righteous enough to be righteous for your children. You can't choose that for them. You can't make every good decision 
And if you make every right decision, then they'll make every right decision. At the end of the day, you have to put them in the hands of, the hands of God, their God, who loves them more than you love them, who cares for them more than you care for them, who looks after them more than even than you look after them. And let the stress come off that in order for them to be perfect, you have to be perfect. That's weight and that's a burden that God has not asked us to carry, but we can't see that unless we are fixing our eyes on Jesus. His cross reminds us this all doesn't rest on us. And then look what he says is the very end. He despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of God's throne. All through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is presented as the perfect priest, specifically the perfect high priest. Uh, turn a few pages to the left to Hebrews chapter 7. verse 26 it says this for this is the kind of high priest we need holy innocent undefiled separated separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins then for those of the people he did this once for all when he offered himself so in the old testament the high priest would have to first offer a sacrifice uh, for his own sin And then he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. But this says Jesus didn't need to do that because he wasn't a sinner. And he didn't have to show up again and do it the next day because his sacrifice of himself was once for all time for all people. For the law appointed as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of what's being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. So the picture is Jesus doing the work of a high priest. He's mediating between God and man. So if you're here today and you're wondering, man, how can I get to God? I want to get to eternal life. I want heaven. I want all those things. I want promise of a future. How do I get that to happen? Jesus is the way. He is the mediator between God and man. And he finished that work. That's why he said on the cross, his last words, it is finished. And the scripture tells us that he ascended up into heaven and then he sat down at the right hand of God. So right now we're in this space where the work is finished, but there's still some distance of time. There's still some distance to cover. I love a story in the gospels, John chapter four. And you don't have to turn there if you, if you don't want to. But uh, John chapter 4 tells a story about a father who comes to Jesus. Verse 46. Then he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official who was ill at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. So this father, his son is dying. He, he, he knows Jesus has the ability. So he's just got to get to Jesus and make a request. And Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Verse 49, sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Verse 50, go, Jesus said to him, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Would you have had the courage to leave? I don't think I would have. I think if Jesus said, go on, Jackson's going to be fine. I would have said, well, why don't, would you just come with me just in case? 
just maybe. I'd love for you to meet him. It'd be great. But he didn't. He just left. And while he was still going down, his slaves met him saying that his boy was alive. And he asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at seven in the morning, the fever left him, they answered. And the father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. Then he himself believed along with his whole household. What do you think that walk was like for this father? Jesus said, it's done. He's going to live. He's going to be fine. You think he walked really fast? You think he took his time because he wasn't in a hurry? His boy was fine. Think he made some stops? You think he kind of wavered back and forth between faith and unbelief? Jesus said, it's happening. It's going to be awesome to... I really wish you would have come with me just in case. What if it doesn't happen? See, the work was finished, but there was still some distance to cover. And this is where we are right now. God has done everything that needs to be done in the work of his son to mediate between us. It's finished. It's complete. But there's still some time to cover. And it's in that distance, that time that we work in our fields. But we work already knowing the ending. We work already knowing that it is finished, but believing it all the way. And that helps us endure. That helps us stay out in the field when the comfort of home, the comfort of ease comes calling. You want to endure in your field? You want to last? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Know that he has finished it. Lay aside every sin. Lay aside any weight today that's hindering you from running effectively. And look to the cloud of witnesses to serve as an example that the field is worth it so that we can be faithful in the chapter that God has given us. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the authority of your word that as we read it and as we put ourselves into it, it speaks so clearly and true. And we just receive it as truth today. So I pray for you to, Holy Spirit, come and give us what we need to endure. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus today. Undistracted, fully focused. I pray that we would also let you come and convict us of any sin that has entangled us. I pray that you would give us the strength to lay aside some weight that we've carried for a long time that's unnecessary and actually unhelpful. Give us the strength to lay it down. I, I would guess that we love that way very much. And we've grown accustomed to it. But we want to endure. We want to be found faithful. We don't want to drop out or burn out. We want to stand in the place that you've asked us to stand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet. We'll finish our services today by having a time of prayer ministry. And so if that team would come forward and take their places. If this is your first time here at Bighty City, 
Jesus said that God's house is a house of prayer. We take that very seriously. We don't want to stand before him one day and said, I gave you a specific goal for your church and say, well, we got distracted or we ran out of time or we thought other things were more important. This, in fact, is probably the most important thing that we'll do today. We've spoken some truth and sung some truth about God and praise. We've opened up the word of God, but now it's the time to actually talk to God himself. We're grateful today that we don't need anybody to do that for us. We can talk to him ourselves. But as a family, we pray together. And so we'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're sick today. We want to pray for you. Maybe you're in a season that's just really, really tough and endurance is coming at a high cost and you just want an extra wind of strength and momentum to come into your sails. Come and pray today. Maybe there's something else that's on your heart. Come and pray. But I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus this morning and as you do, can you say with confidence, I'm connected to him. When I think about him on the cross, I can see myself there. I can see myself attached to his sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins. And if you look at him today, fixing your eyes on him, and you're like, I'm not sure, I don't know if I am, then as others come forward for prayer, then you make your way over to my right and your left to the access room. Because you can leave today knowing that you are connected to Jesus. You can leave today knowing that you are a follower. You can leave today knowing that your sins have been forgiven. You can leave today knowing that you have eternal life. You can leave today knowing that you have hope and confidence about heaven to come. You're like, well, I don't know what to say if I walked over there. That's a great thing. You don't have to say anything. You just walk in. Somebody else will lead the conversation for you. And you can leave with some confidence today. God, we come to you in this time. Don't just, just pray that it wouldn't be lip service that we're saying that this is important. I pray that we would feel its importance this morning as we pray together as a family. And I pray that you would answer these requests. We have so many stories of those cloud of witnesses that when they made requests, you answered We pray that we would not be unlike them today, that we would have faith and we would see your response, God. So we ask these things not because we deserve them, not because they're our right, but because you are good and you are faithful and you are better than we deserve. So in the spirit of sons and daughters, we come asking our Father, give us these requests. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You come forward and let's worship together.